Welcome to the Bagland Podcast. This is your host, Bagland DP, where we discuss politics, tech, and tangibles. Tonight, I will not be announcing any promotions for black-owned businesses at the start. I might do some a little later. But the first thing I want to do is put some extra respect on Florence B. Price's name. This is a hidden genius, gone but never forgotten. Florence B. Price was born in the year of our Lord, April 9th, 1887, and she passed, or should I say transitioned, on June 3rd, 1953. Okay. Now, the way I learned about Florence B. Price is I was on YouTube and I was looking for some black composers one day. I wanted to see, you know, if I could find some. And her name happened to pop up when I was looking in my search. I clicked on her and I was amazed. And I started asking other people if they knew who she was. I asked, you know, my grandmother. She didn't know who she was at all. I talked to one of my homeboys who is, uh, you, you know, a, a very avid music listener and connoisseur, if you will. He didn't know she, who she was. No one didn't know. So you know what I do. I did some research and I found that her work was unknown to many and forgotten. She was one of the best at her time, but her name was not properly mentioned with the greats. So I kept looking for more information and I started to listen to more of her work. And it was a gold mine of talent. It was like the Raiders of the Lost Ark for archivists. Florence B. Price was a foundational black American. Another thing I want to say is the former slaves being denied from their greatness and still being great nonetheless. That was amazing in itself. Now, not long ago, a couple, they bought a fixer-upper, okay? South of Chicago. And they discovered nearly 30 boxes of manuscripts and papers. Now, I may jump around a little bit because I'm getting a lot of different sources. But among the discoveries in what turned out to be Price's abandoned summer home was her fourth symphony, symphony, which was composed in 1945. Now, in 2009, Vicki and Daryl Gatwood of St. Anne, Illinois, was preparing to renovate an abandoned house on the outskirts of town. Now, St. Anne is in Kankakee County. I knew a woman from Kankakee, there's good people out there. 15-minute drive from St. Anne, now, St. Anne's about 90 miles away from Chicago. So if you, if you're from out there, maybe an hour and a half or less to set you back to shop in the big city. And Kankakee is a half black city for those that don't know. All right. Now notice if you listen to some of the music, you hear, if you, if you ever listen to some of Roots, you know, like it's like you hear a little bit of Mozart, but then you hear some of the Negro spiritual stuff alongside of it. But anyway, um, back to Kankakee, you know, as a side note, if I was a major artist or underground artist, I'd be sliding through those, those smaller cities all the time. You know, build a good fan base. But anyway, uh, the structure that they found Miss Price's symphonies was in poor condition. 
Vandals had ransacked it. A falling tree had torn a hole in the roof. And in part of that house that had remained dry, the Gatwoods, they made a curious discovery. Piles of musical manuscripts, books, personal papers, and other documents. Now, the name that kept appearing in the materials was that of Florence Price. And the Gatwoods looked her up on the internet and found that she was a moderately well-known composer based in Chicago who had died in 1953. Now, the dilapidated house had once been her summer home. Now, the couple got in touch with librarians at the University of Arkansas, which already had some of Price's papers. And archivists realized with excitement that the collection contained dozens of Price's scores that had been thought lost. Now, two of these pieces, the violin concertos number one and two, has, reason, has recently been recorded by the Albany label. And the soloist is Ear Jean Kang, who was based at the University of Arkansas. Now, the New York Times quotes the musicologist Douglas Shadow, Shadow, who has documented the vagaries of Price's career, describes her reputation as spectral. She is widely cited as one of the one of the first African American classical classical composers to win national attention, and she was unquestionably the first. She was unquestionably, unquestionably, the first black woman to be so recognized. Yet. She is mentioned more often than she is heard. Now, Shady points out that the classical canon is rooted in conscious selection performed by individuals in position in position to power. Not only did Price fall, or, or uh, they said it failed to enter the can the canon, a large quantity of her music came perilously close to obliteration. That rundown house of St. Anne was a potent symbol of how a country can forget its cultural history, which is a crying shame. It's, it's, it's horrible that this occurred. However, I did wonder as to why her children did not keep archives and her property. How and why did it end up in the condition it did? Born in Arkansas in 1887, Florence B. Price moved to Boston at age 14 where she enrolled in the New England Conservatory of Music, studying with Frederick Converse and privately with George Chatwick. Now, after graduating in 1906, she returned to Arkansas and held several teaching positions until 1927 when her family moved to Chicago. Now, just to give you a little bit of context here, remember if you look at some of my old episodes, some of my old broadcasts before these, I talked about there was a section, I can't remember what episode it was. Y'all got to go back and check it out. But there was a section where black folks in Arkansas was doing pretty damn good. Right? They were doing they were doing all right. Like I said, we were doing better in the 1900s than we ever will. This is the worst that we've ever been. Okay? So, a lot of black folks, they would take the game that they learned from other universities and then they bring it back to the South. They bring it back to somewhere else where they could teach other black folks that couldn't enroll under the Jim Crow laws. All the anti-black laws that was set aside for the descendants of the slaves. You had teachers, black teachers that would go back up to these environments and they would teach the black kids what the, the, the game they learned from different places. Now, some people just went and they just stayed but a lot of them did go back down. Now, continuing her composition studies there in Boston, 
she would go on to write some 300 works and this right this piece right here i believe it's a brother that's playing the piano playing her work um but you know after her composition studies there she went on to write about 300 works and became the first black woman in the u.s to be recognized as a symphonic composer now the two works on the new album testify her new work new art they said now note she grew up in middle class it kind of reminds me of Miles Davis. Anybody that's a big jazz connoisseur, should I say the blues, I, be, I do believe that there was a, a quote in which Miles Davis had said something of the sort where they asked him about, well, something about his jazz music, and he was like, what the fuck is jazz? He was offended, like, I don't, we don't use that bullshit word. White folks came up with that. No, this is blues. Don't tell me about no goddamn jazz. I can't remember what article that was he quoted, but you know, they say that Miles Davis, he don't, he said he ain't calling no damn jazz. He said, I don't use that shit. He said, this blues. So the man says it's blues, it's blues. But anyway, um, you got to read that Miles Davis autobiography. It's, it's super dope. You know, if you like an uncut nigga that was just straight raw, didn't give a damn, cold, cold as ice and cold with his work, good read. Um, but it reminds me of the Miles Davis uh, story a little bit you know he grew up decent um his family had trades now note that many black folks especially in the 1900s as i'll say it again they pulled up their own bootstraps and obtained land they obtained land and learned trades because they were forced to which is getting ready to get that way right now you couldn't really be a vagrant back then that was looked down upon everybody had occupations her father was a dentist Florence Price's father was a dentist, her mother a piano teacher, a teacher, and a businesswoman. Now, as a child, Smith received musical instruction from her mother, and she published musical pieces while in high school. She attended Capitol Hill School in Little Rock. All right. Graduating as valedictorian in 1903. Smith then studied at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston, Massachusetts, where I was mentioned that earlier which was a notable achievement for a black woman at that time now let's note this she had to roll enroll as a mexican because black folks were not allowed so you want to get into this context with this whole little black and brown coalition thing if you were black you were at the bottom so the fact that she had to enroll as a mexican they wouldn't even accept a black person which means that mexicans back then were considered to be white that, that statement I'm making is either true or false, by definition. Now, her teacher, George Chadwick, told her to throw some soul in it. At the urging of him as a mentor, George Whitefield Chadwick, Price began to incorporate elements of African-American spirituals, emphasizing the rhythm and syncopation of the spirituals rather than just using the text. So, some of your roots, I guess. So, at some point, I'm thinking that he found out she was black. I suppose he kept it quiet or either didn't care, you know, and if if someone said something, he probably could have defended her. You know, I wonder if they kept in touch. Now, he died in 1931, so I'm not really sure, you know. Now, even though her training was steeped in European tradition, Price's music consisted of mostly the American idiom and revealed her southern roots. She wrote with a vernacular style using sounds and ideas that fit the reality of urban society. Being deeply religious, she frequently used the music of the African-American church. I don't like using that word, but interchangeably here. 
as material for her arrangements. Her melodies were blues inspired and mixed with more traditional European romantic techniques. So she did a hybrid. She took the game. When you look at a lot of classical music or just, you know, European, uh, if you will, uh, classical music, that's just the European romantic technique, but she didn't blended it up. So she threw that, she threw that soul in there. You see, now she threw that blues, she threw that spirit up in there. Now the weaving of tradition and modernism reflected the life way, the, reflected the way life was for black folks in large cities at the time. I was trying to find her influences and one of the main pe people I wanted to look for was her mentor, which I mentioned before, George Whitefield Chadwick. Chadwick can compose in almost every genre, including opera, chamber music, choral works, and songs, though he had a particular affinity for orchestral music. Now, his music can be categorized into four style periods. The formative period, which was from 1879 to 1894. The Americanism slash period from 1895 to 1909. The dramatic period from 1910 to 1918. And the reflective years, 1919 to 1931. So I'm thinking she may have been versed in those genres as well. Now, Chadwick studied, studied under Carl Reinick, and Reinick had studied under Felix Mendelssohn. Now, he studied under Ludwig Berger, and he studied alongside Musio Clementi. Now, Clementi had a piano competition with Mozart, so we're going down the line here. Clementi was influenced by Danico Scarlatti which his music was influential in the development of the classical style. Scarlatti was born in 1685, same year as John Sebastian Bach. Now, Scarlatti studied under his father, Alessandro Scarlatti. Now, who did he study? It said he was a student of Giacomo Carissimi of Rome. So we could go down a rabbit hole. Another thing I thought about is for black folks that didn't have access to these teachings, for the bootstrap theory then, Say you are enslaved and have a, enslaved and have a natural knack and understanding of music and math. A hidden genius, so to say. You won't have access to composing music, and if you did, the slave master could take your work, publish it, and force you to compose more and perform for him to reap the benefits. Now her scores should be in tons of tons of Hollywood movies. This was soul. If you listen to some of the roots uh, score music. It should remind you of her music. Anybody, I think everybody that's listening on the Bagland podcast tonight has watched Alex Haley's Roots. If you haven't, uh, I don't know what planet you've been on, but you need to come back down here to Earth, you know. So she majored in piano and organ. I'm going to play some, some of that a little later here. Also, while there, Smith wrote her first string trio in symphony. She graduated in 1906 with honors and with both an artist diploma in organ and a teaching certificate. She earned a bachelor of music degree in 1906. The only one of 2000 students to pursue a, to pursue a double major, which was organ and piano performance. Studying with Frederick S. Converse on piano, George Whitefield Chadwick music theory and Henry M. Dunham organ. So one would assume that coming from, we, coming from where she came, coming from the anti-black white supremacist Jim Crow South, going out there to an also anti-black spot, Boston, 
if you do your research. Um, she probably when she had to enroll as a Mexican, you know, she's going up hard against, you know, all these other students, two thousand students. You see what I'm saying? Earning a teacher a teaching certificate, her bachelor's in music, a double major, and studying with these greats. So, you know, they probably had to seen something shine up in her. They had to be like, wait a minute, you you different. You different. You you ain't like these other folks. You way different. Now, after graduation, Smith returned to Arkansas to teach music at the Cotton Plant Arkadelphia Academy in Cotton Plant, Woodruff County. She left Cotton Plant after one year, however, to teach at Shorter College in North Little Rock, Pulaski County. And she remained there until 1910. Now in that year, however, she moved to Atlanta where she was the head of the music department at Clark university until 1912. Y'all heard about Clark university. That's a notable college. Now she became the first black female composer to have a symphony performed by a major American orchestra when music director Frederick Stock and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra played the world premiere of her symphony number no. one in E minor in the year of our Lord, June 15, 1933. This is some of her organ music playing here. On one of those, on June 15, 1933, on one of four concerts presented at the Auditorium Theater from June 14th through June 17th during Chicago's Century of Progress Ep Exposition. This was big. This was like the Madison Square Garden. You know what I'm saying? This is, this was big for her. Now the historic June 15th concert entitled The Negro in Music also included works by Harry T. Burley, Roland Hayes, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, and John Alden Carpenter performed by Margaret A. Bonds, pianist and tenor Roland Hayes with the orchestra. Now, Florence Price's symphony had come to the attention of Stock when it won first prize in the prestigious Wanamaker competition held the previous year. Now, the Chicago Daily News reported, quote, it is a faultless work, a work that speaks its own message with restraint and yet with passion, worthy of a place in the regular symphonic repertory. Later, it would have become known through the archival records of Chicago Music Association that Maude Roberts George, classical musical critic for the Chicago Defender and the president of CMA of which Price was a member, underwrote the cost of the June 15, 1933 concert. Now, she would continue to wage an uphill battle a battle much larger than any war that pure talent and musical skill could win. It was a battle in which the nation was embroiled in a dangerous melange of segregation, Jim Crow laws, entrenched white supremacy and sexism. This is quoted by Women's Voices for Change on March 8, 2013. Now, as some context here, I gotta throw in our great late Ida B. Wells. Around that same time, let's keep in mind that Ida was running around on the South with that pole, taking documentation, getting information about brothers that had gotten 
you know, Lynch, because, you know, Florence, one of the reasons why she left the South, Florence B. Price left the South because you had a lot of lynchings down there. They were stringing brothers up in Arkansas. Okay, so let, let's keep that in mind. And if I remember correctly, no, that was Memphis where she was at. But Memphis, Memphis ain't too far from Arkansas. But remember, Ida B. Wells had left, she had left Arkansas, and I believe that's where she went to Chicago. See, a lot of black folks, they left the South and went to Chicago. You see what I mean? So she they probably knew about each other. I'm pretty sure they probably heard about each other. You know, all the greats, they they knew about each other. They had a lot of respect for each other. Black folks used to love each other back then. I mean, you know, you had the coonery here and there, but for the most part, I mean, that's all we had. Now, the same faith would also befall fellow Arkansas, 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 William Grant Steele. Now, that's another brother that's a composer. They quote him as the Dean of Black Composers, whose African-American symphony was performed by the Rochester Philharmonic Symphony under Howard Hansen. The first time in history that a major American orchestra had placed a symphonic work by a black composer. And many others um, due to rampant, endemic, and systemic racism and white supremacy. Okay? So this brother here, this brother here, William Grant Steele, he was like one of the first. You know, he was one of the first, you know, that, you know, the, these are groundbreakers here, y'all. These are pioneers. William Grant Steele, you need to check him out as well. Florence B. Price and William Grant Steele. It's another good work that she did. Um, but these were groundbreakers. These were people that kind of set the stone. And a lot of times these folks get forgotten about. Okay. Now the reason why she left Little Rock, like I said, was due to the anti-black lynching assaults and ambushes by the white supremacists. That statement is not false. I'm not even going to say, was that statement true or false? That is a fact. That's not false. That's true. Now, the New Yorker quotes, the reasons for the shocking neglect of Price's legacy are not hard to find. In 1943, a letter to the conductor, Sergei Kosovitsky, she introduced herself thus, quoting, my dear Dr. Kosovitsky, to begin with, I have two handicaps. This is Miss Price speaking here. Those of sex and race. I am a woman and I have some Negro blood in my veins. So let's okay. So now I'm I'm gonna get I'm gonna get in some layers on it on the Bagland podcast tonight. She wasn't no I'm I'm not black, I'm biracial Bridget. She wasn't a I'm not black, I'm biracial Bridget. She said it off top. I have Negro blood in my veins. Yeah, I enrolled as a Mexican so I could get my bag up and get the game and bring it back down to the South. Don't get it twisted. I'm black. I'm not one of these, you know what I'm saying? I ain't one of these racially fluid, these goofy ass, no. She says, I am a woman and I have some Negro blood in my veins. I'm letting it be known. I am black, be one. Now she plainly saw these factors as obstacles to her career because she then spoke of Kotovitsky knowing the worst. Indeed, she had a difficult time making headway in a culture that defined composers as white, male, and dead. 
One prominent conductor took her up on her calls, Frederick Stock, the German-born music director of the Chicago Symphony, but most others ignored her, Kosovitsky included. So Kosovitsky didn't really want to ride with her. He didn't want to work with her. It didn't matter that she was talented. Remember when I did that episode not too long ago, I talked about how Benjamin Banneker had wrote to Jefferson and basically said, hey, look, you know, uh, you, you, you doing black folks, um, wrong. You know what I'm saying? Um, you say you want to look out for black folks, but you doing black folks wrong. And he starts saying, oh man, your work is so dope. And this, that, and the third, and, and all this was that James Ford. No, was that, that Banneker? No, Banneker. Banneker was like, yeah, you know, so his almanac, they were like, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, your work is dope. And Jefferson reached out to somebody overseas. Like, man, his work was all on point. And then after he died, he said he had a lot of slick stuff about him. He started explaining and back, back walking things. And then whenever he, when he passed, he started talking about his work wasn't up to par and he had help and oh, you know, that old typical, that typical BS, the black men deal with on the job. Oh, I don't think he did it or whatever. And anyway, but Kosovitsky didn't really want to deal with Florence B. Price. Now, it says only in the past couple of decades have Price's major works begun to receive recordings of performances, and these are still infrequent. I get to the point in my career, y'all, I'm about to put on a Florence B. Price symphony. I'm going to find out how much it costs because, you know, she, her, her work needs to be showcased. It wouldn't be right if I didn't. I'd be off cold if I didn't at least try. Well, why you got to do all that? Why are you worried about all that? Because it's the right thing to do, nigga. That's why. Anyway, following graduation, Miss Price taught for one year at the Cotton Plant Arkadelphia Presbyterian Academy campus in northeastern Arkansas. The main campus was located in southwestern Arkansas in the city of Arkadelphia. Then at Little Rock Shorter College and from 1910 to 1912 at Clark University in Atlanta before returning to Little Rock where she taught privately and became active in composition. I'm jumping around a little bit, but just to get, you know, kind of give you a, an idea. I hope y'all are writing the dates down. Now, segregation was the order of the day. Let me talk about that a little bit. Let me talk about that a little bit here. It was the order of the day. Well, I'm tired of you talking about white supremacy. Listen, it's the facts. Let's keep it real. It was the order of the day. You ate, you breathed it, you slept it. So that's why people don't need to be talking about, well, you know, we don't really want to hear it anymore. No, the descendants of the slaves, foundation of black Americans, we ate and slept it. We earned the right for the benefits. Anyway. Segregation was in was the order of the day and racial tensions began to mount in the city in, in Arkansas. Price was unable to find un, find employment. Now listen to this. After being refused admission to the all-white Arkansas Music Teachers Association, so this sister couldn't even get a job, but she was dope. She was doper than all them bastards. Let's keep it 100. You had to be doper. When you were black back then, you had to be doper. You had to be doper than everybody else. You were doper. And they couldn't let you in because they knew that you were great. They knew that if they let you in, the pyramids going to come in and crush you, crush them to dust. They knew that. So what did she do? She didn't become a weeping, scared Negro. 
They refused admission to the all-white Arkansas Music Teachers Association. She founded the Little Rock Club of Musicians and taught music at the segregated black schools, which what we need to be doing today. That's exactly what we need to be doing. That's what we need to be doing when people are mistreating our, our kids. You know, you hearing about, you know, these folks beating up the kids and doing this, that, and that. We need to have our own shit. Well, man, you trying to separate people. That's exactly. Separate separate the anti-blacks versus the pro-blacks. You anti-black, you go over there. That's all. If you don't believe in uh, everyone being treated well and uh, everyone receiving the most constructive help, you go over there. Let us over here. Now, Little Rock had been a comfortable city for black residents. I talked about this before, right? But as racial problems began to develop, resulting in a lynching, Price moved with her husband, who was an attorney, Thomas J. Price, whom she married in 1912. She moved to Chicago with their two daughters in 1927. Now, note that black folks was leaving the South, heading to Chicago and North during this time. Let's be very, very clear. When black folks got there, they had problems with the employment sector as well. Let's note that the sundown towns were set up eventually by, you know, white Southerners. They were very bitter about black people doing well. Now, black folks, they wasn't doing anything to them. Their anti-black attitude fevered a disdain and a boiling pot of hate. Now, this set tone for the laws and ambush terror murders. Now, I saw many articles talking about her mixed race and all that. She was probably able to use some things to her advantage because black folks had been on an unfair scale. So I don't, I'm not going to use that against her and say, oh, well, she passed. She shouldn't know. If you pass, you pass. Shit, get your benefits. But she wasn't no, I'm not black, I'm biracial Bridget. Out here talking about I'm mixed and all of that. She wasn't telling other black folks, well, I'm mixed and, well, even they, are you black, Florence B. Price? Well, I'm mixed and I'm, my, no, she wasn't one of these confused ass niggas. She was black in the South. You a nigga. Oh, you in the South? You a nigga. The white supremacists made that clear. She was no, I'm not black, I'm biracial Bridget. She was not confused. Be clear about that. And I'm going to prove my point. Was she able to secure the same access of her white counterparts? That's a question. Even though she was not, even though she was just, if not more talented, or did she have to pass in order to get into that damn school? That's a question. You know the answer. Did she have the option to stay in Little Rock due to racial terror, assaults, and murders? Did that so-called white or mixed race composition protect her, if that was the case? No, she was black black enough to suffer the hands of southern anti-black supremacy and the hands of more white supremacy upon our arrival in the north due to her black uniform now professor dominique renee de lerma distinguished american musicologist or uh, this person was a distinguished american musicologist a musicologist and eminent history his, historian i'm sorry states quote Florence Price was born in a racially integrated community in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1887, where at the age of four, she played in her first piano recital and her first composition was published at the age of 11. She was a genius at that time, hidden genius, all under her mother's guidance. The Lerma continues, quote, 
her mother Florence Irene Smith Nee Gulliver had been a school teacher in Indianapolis, Indiana before her marriage and in Little Rock had a restaurant, sold real estate, and served as a secretary of the International Loan and Trust Company. Her father, James H. Smith, was the city's only black dentist. His patients included the state's governor, who had moved to Little Rock in 1876. So, just a backdrop, black folks was doing their thing down there in Little Rock. Don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted at all. Keep in mind, black men were coming home from the wars being strung up when seen in their, in their military uniform. Now remember, Ida B. Wells had her friends lynched in 1892. Note that after slavery, the anti-black terror assaults were highly pre prevalent. 1927 ain't too far off. That's a nice block of time in the lynchings. Now, Ida died in 1931, so let me get clear on that. So I'm sure the Price probably heard about her. She knew well of the terrorism of white supremacy. We need to note that. And it was Ida who showcased the lies and exposed the anti-black white feminist movement and the ambush murders of black men with zero evidence of crimes. Now, the Elaine massacre from, from September 30th to October 1st, 1919. Look that up. Look up the Elaine massacre. Well, back then, DP, you get trying to know. Look it up. Look it up. Don't quote me. Look it up. Now, hundreds of black people were murdered in Phillips County, Arkansas. Black farmers were being mistreated and they were refused constructive help. And the sheriff organized a posse and put down a fabricated black insurrection, which didn't happen. It was another Rosewood. They had the Rosewood mentality. You need to go back and look at my episode about the Rosewood mentality. Okay. Now, quoting Oz.com, Janine Perry, a University of Arkansas's Fayetteville political scientist, comparing Arkansas to the rest of the South in the 19th century, she says, quote, there wasn't as much of a history of lynching. Everyone was so poor. There wasn't as many plantations. That's something you need to note in Arkansas. There wasn't, a, there wasn't as many plantations as places like Mississippi, which was the Cotton King. So quoting, this person said, we had this racial tolerance and indifference. I don't, well, that's what they said. So now for a short, for a short time, less than a century before Central High, the state that calls itself the land of opportunity really appeared to be one for all people, regardless of race or creed. That's what they say. I wasn't around back then, but it seems like everybody had it cracking because if everybody had it cracking, maybe there was no, no need for, for heavy, heavy clan activity around that time. But as you could see, um, you know, they get the hate and they're like, man, these Negroes doing their thing. We got to stop this. Now, part of that sentiment is embedded in the geography of Arkansas. While called Southern, it is not the deep South. The northern part of the state today, as in earlier eras, is marked by Midwestern manufacturing and its west taps into the cowboy mindset of neighboring Oklahoma and Texas. Most important, it shares the Mississippi Delta, a fertile region similar to uh, familiar to black farmers, but with less racial tension than in the Magnolia state on the east bank of the river. Despite trying to enslave free blacks on the eve of the Civil War, writes Fawn Gordon in Cast and Class, quote, the black experience in Arkansas, 1880 to, eight to, to 1920, he quotes, many blacks in the Deep South came to regard Arkansas as a promised land. So I wasn't lying when I was talking about Arkansas, right? 
The state had plenty of motivation to encourage that image, whether or not it held up to scrutiny. While plantations had never quite taken root here after the Civil War, planters started developing the Arkansas side of the Delta for cotton and rice production. Scores of labor agents made their way throughout adjacent southern states, trying to lure farmhands who were told in the fields. As Gordon recalls in her book, a former Southern Carolina, Carolinian remembers her parents moving to Arkansas in 1888 after an agent described the state as a tropical country of soft and balmy air where coconuts, oranges, lemons, and bananas grew. Ordinary things like corn and cotton with little cultivation grew an enormous yield. So they had coconuts, they had oranges, lemons, bananas. I didn't know that. Corn, they had cotton, an enormous yield. Now prominent black folks joined the recruitment effort convinced that they had at least found a land to call their own. Quote, Arkansas is designed to be the great Negro state of the country, says Bishop Henry M. Turner of the African Methodist, um, how do you say this, Episcopal Church in January 1889. The meager prejudice compared to some states, an opportunity to acquire wealth, all conspired to make it inviting to the colored man. Now, this, was, this was a bishop in the black church in January 1889. He said that, you know, other states, you know, it's a it's a little tighter with the white supremacy oh, out here. You know, you could really make a name for yourself. You could kind of stay away from some of that. In so many words. Now, the Georgia based leader of the United States, prominent black denunciation continued quoting this. This is the state for colored men who wish to live by their merits. So you put in the work, you put in the bag, you do your thing and you're going to live out. You're going to live out here now black folks they begin to heed the call the population of the state tripled from 1870 to the 1890s now black folks formed the majority in two towns helena and pine bluff where they developed a small but successful middle class gordon writes which is what we need to do again from 1868 to 1893 every state general assembly had at least one black legislator helped in part by the Republican Party's decision to strategically elevate minority voices. Now, before we go, Dr. Claude Anderson wasn't lying. The bag, then the vote. Not, not the other way around. I'm not just flapping my gums here. You read it right here. The bag, then the vote. Black folks was getting the bag first. Then they focus on the vote. Ironically, Considering the first desegregation fight in Arkansas, this era saw the creation of the first state public schools and the passage of an 1873 civil rights law that made it illegal to bar blacks from public institutions. This was 1873. So they've been stepping on our toes. Now, in Arkansas, attorneys, dentists, and other black professionals emerged at a time when in some states, such as Florida, doctors still had a whites-only entrance on Main Street and black patients had to enter in the back. In Arkansas, at least, one would not have to, un to endure that kind of humiliation and degradation, Gordon tells Ozzy. You went to see a physician, and he had only one waiting room for everybody. So black folks had it popping in Little Rock, for people that don't know. I ain't making this up. 
Now, let's keep it going. You're going to get some history here. We're we, we going to see what Arkansas really looked like in the life of Florence B. Price. Now, in time, the state's promise of opportunity proved illusory. If Arkansas had seemed different from its southern neighbors, it was because the black population was significantly smaller. A quarter of the population compared to majorities and near majorities in Mississippi and Louisiana. Quote, the black demographic was considered less of a threat, Gordon says. But as the population grew, so did the turmoil. So it's that same thing. When there's more black folks to kind of move into the neighborhood, they're doing their thing, they get it popping. Man, you, the, the salt comes. Too many Negroes over here. We don't want no Tulsa. We can't have a Tulsa. We can't have a Rosewood. You see? From 1889 to 1918, there was 214 cases of racial violence in Arkansas. Nevertheless, leaders like Bishop Turner continued to call for black settlement. So he said, man, y'all still come down here, try to do your thing. Partly out of wishful thinking, quote, saying, black folks certainly wanted to believe there was some place in the South they could call home, Gordon notes. In a system of oppression, they were trying to make the best of a bad situation. Okay. Now, in the aftermath of the Roaring Twenties, all black or nearly all black towns emerged in the South, which led to some economic gains. It was akin to the lace curtain Irish, Gordon says, referring to those who rose from working class to middle class and developed economies in which minorities did business with each other independent of the dominant white economy. So they were basically saying, hey, look, the Irish, they came by, they were like, oh, y'all ain't white, y'all Irish. So they had to try to blend in and do their thing before they got accepted. So they had to break bread with each other first. But eventually they accepted them. Okay, y'all like us. Let's get a, let's go against these Negroes here. We got to uphold white supremacy. While there wasn't a comparable term for black folks, the same types of gains were, quote, achieved in parts of all the southern states, Gordon adds. But the advent of Jim Crow laws derailed the journey to equality for decades. So even though black folks was doing well, when they talk about oh, your bootstraps, your bootstraps, we were pulling our own bootstraps. We were doing that. And then you see what they did. So just wanted to give everybody an idea. Black folks had a, had it popping across the country for themselves because they had to more than we do now. Look at Florence B. Price's parents. We lost all this due to colder ice because the civil rights Negroes sold us out. We were special people. Everywhere we went, we were subverted. This is why I always say other groups cannot compare to what we, what we dealt with as a former slaves given to this country. We need to stand on those facts. Let's get back to the story. Shortly after arriving in Chicago, Price joined the R. Nathaniel Delt Debt Club of Music and the Allied Arts, named for the black composer of Canadian descent, and did additional study at the American Conservatory of Music, Chicago Teachers College, Central YMCA College, the University of Chicago, and the Chicago Musical College, now called the Chicago College of Performing Arts of Roosevelt University, as a student in composition and orchestration with Carl Busch and Wesley LaViolet, graduating in 1934. It was at Chicago Music, it was uh, at the Chicago Musical College that Florence Price met baritone Theodore Charles Stone, 
who was a member of the Chicago Music Association, who later served as its president from 1954 to 1996. Now, the Chicago Music Association had been established in the year of our Lord, March 3rd, 1919, by Nora Douglas Holt, then the classical music editor, or music critic, I'm sorry, for the Chicago Defender, in order to provide performance venues for classically trained Negro musicians who were, by tradition, denied performance opportunities in major concert halls and on opera stages throughout the country. So once again, you were good, but not good enough because of your uniform. Your black uniform prevented you from getting into the places that you should have rightfully been able to get to. For all these so-called laws, Billy Bob says, oh, there was laws and there was laws and laws and laws. They weren't enforced. There wasn't constructive help. That's not a, that's not a, oh, it's a true or false. That's a fact. Ain't no true or false. There ain't nothing false about it. It's undebatable. In July 1919, musicians from Washington, D.C. met with the newly organized CMA in Chicago at Brownsville's historic Wabash Avenue, YMCA, and organized the National Association of Negro Musicians Incorporated, the NANM. Brownsville is a historic um, black neighborhood in Chicago. I think I heard about an article where it was some brothers from Ghana where there was like a bank that was having some trouble, a black bank in Brownsville, neighborhood of Chicago where they uh I think the brothers in Ghana broke some bread with them to save the business I, I think there was an article about that years ago but anyway uh the Chicago Music Association became the first branch and awarded its first scholarship prize to Miss Marion Anderson of Philadelphia Pennsylvania it is significant to note here that these meetings were held during a horrific race war occurring less than three miles away from the 31st street beach and gunshots could be heard through the open windows of the meeting hall. So even up North in Chicago, these white supremacists were showing their ass. Now Ted Stone encouraged Florence B. Price to join CMA where she met organist Estella Bonds and her young daughter, Margaret, who would later become Florence's student. Stone was the first, this is another good piece y'all hearing here. Now Stone was the first black who would later study at the Sibelius Institute in Helsinki, Finland, after having sung for Marian Anderson's accompanist, Kosti Vahanen, a colleague of Jean Sibelius, who awarded Stone a scholarship. Now, the outbreak of World War II in Europe would force Stone to return to Chicago in 1939, where he reunited with CMA, and resumed his career as a classical singer, uh, a music promoter, and a journalist writing for the Chicago Bee and the Associated Negro Press, Negro Press, which is now defunct. Now, the Chicago Defender at the time, the oldest black-owned daily newspaper, which was established in 1905, and the Chicago Crusader, the oldest black-owned weekly newspaper, which was established in 1940. Now, Florence Price's career flourished after the move to Chicago. She was doing better up north you know, far as things was going. And it was around 1928 when the G. Shermer and McKinley publishing companies began to issue her songs, her piano music, and especially her instructional pieces for piano. Now she filed for divorce from Thomas Price in 1928 and she and her children moved in with her student and friend, Margaret Bonds. She gave music lessons at her home 
and at the T. Theodore Taylor School of Music located in the, Ab in the Abraham Lincoln Center Community Service Agency, which was at 700 East Oakwood Boulevard in Chicago's historic Brownsville, or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Bronzeville community, which is now occupied by the Northeastern Illinois University Center for Inner City Studies. And she composed more than 300 works, including symphonies, organ works, piano concertos, concertos, works for violin, arrangements of spirituals, art songs, chamber works. Okay. Now, Florence Price's friendship with Margaret Bonds gained national recognition and performances for both of them. Price and Bonds had submitted compositions for the 1932 Wanamaker competition with Price winning first prize for Symphony in E minor. Y'all got to check out that Symphony E minor. It's dope as hell. I just played it tonight. And she got second prize for her piano sonata. Now Bonds won third prize for, for a vocal work. And Price's works were performed at concerts held in churches and black social and cultural clubs by chamber ensemble, solo artists, her own her own treble, clef glee club, and by the Florence B. Price acapella chorus conducted by Grace W. Tompkins. Now a number of Price's orchestral works, orchestral works, were played by the Chicago Women's Symphony and the WPA Symphony of Detroit. Okay. Now Marian Anderson, she became friends with Marian Anderson. And Marian Anderson sung Price's spiritual arraignment. It's called My Soul's Been Anchored to the Lord and Schubert's Avenue Maria in an international broadcast from Prague on March 6, 1937. You see? Now, Professor DeLerma adds, quote, as a single person, she earned a living from the sales of her piano works and under the pseudonym of BJ so she had to do like a little fake name as composer of popular songs she also played organ for the silent films and, or and orchestrated for WGN radio additional performances were secured with the US Marine Band the, Mich the Michigan WPA Symphony the Forum String Quartet the Detroit WPA Concert Band the Chicago Club of Women's Organists the Illinois Federation of Music Clubs the Musicians Club of Women in Chicago, the Brooklyn Symphony, the Bronx Symphony, the Pittsburgh Symphony, the Chicago Chamber Orchestra, and the New York City Symphonic Band. You see? Now, Marian Anderson, when she was singing Price's arrangement of that My Soul's Been Anchored in the Lord, many times at her concerts, she performed Price's original setting of the Langston Hughes poem, which a Chicago Daily News reviewer called it one of the greatest immediate successes ever won by an American song. Now, the Hughes song cycle was published in 1941, and other leading black vocalists among them, Roland Hayes and later Leontone Price, began to sing Price's vocal music. Now, among her admirers was composer John Alden Carpenter, whose concertino for piano and orchestra had been performed by Margaret Bonds on the 1933 history-making Century of Progress Exposition concert, who sponsored her for membership in ASCAP. It was probably even rough getting ASCAP back then. Okay. Now, Price continued to compose throughout the 1940s and early 1950s, pinning two concert concertos for violin and orchestra, two additional symphony, symphonies, 
one of which, Symphony Number no. 2, has apparently been lost. And she gained recognition from as far away as England, where conductor Sir John Barbaroli com commissioned her to compose a suite for string instruments, which had its premiere with the famed Holly Orchestra in Manchester. Now remember, a lot of black folks couldn't get no respect on their name as they should have out here in the States. So a lot of us used to go out there to overseas because our work was appreciated. Howlin' Wolf used to go overseas because his work was appreciated. A lot of blues people went overseas because they'd roll out the red carpet for him over there in the UK and all these places. But they come back here and you got, you got supremacist Bob giving them a hard time. Solely on their uniform, nothing else. Okay? So... Over in Europe, they put extra respect on her name. Like, hey, we need you to come out here. We need you to, you know, we, we love your work. Do something for us. So Summer Price's output was written for specific instruments. Now, she continued to write art songs and music for choruses that performed on radio stations, which was, you know, WGN was one of them. She continued to arrange spirituals for solo voice and composed pieces for organs that were performed by organists in many of the black churches of Chicago. She even served as a, she served a term as a recording secretary of the CMA, whose members gave constant encouragement and support. And in 1997, Calvert Johnson, an organist at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, recorded 17 of Price's organ works and performed them in a 1999 CMA-sponsored recital on the historic Kimball organ at Chicago's First Baptist Congregational Church. In 2010, the Center for Black Music Research commissioned Trevor Weston. We need to look, look that up. Trevor Weston, who was an associate professor of music at Drew University to reconstruct the long lost orchestral score for Price's Concerto in one movement for piano and orchestra in order to perform the concerto and release an album of the composer's works, which would become the third issue in the CBMR series quote, recorded music of the African diaspora. Y'all need to go check out the recorded music of the African diaspora. I think that's one of the first, when I was looking this up on YouTube, I think that's what caught my eye when I seen it. I was like, damn, you know, this should be something that's a requirement for black kids going into high school. Hell, going to the third grade, you got to let these, you got to let these people know, you got to let these kids know that we were great. We weren't just slaving away on the damn plantation we came before columbus we've been making dope stuff we've been creating math and science and all that your white anthropologist will say that because let's be honest some black folks don't want to listen to it unless a white person says so but hey man i mean we we got some dope folks and they don't showcase that in in the school and naturally so now some of the best of her work um i made a list here you should check out is the symphony number one the piano concerto the symphony number three the violin concerto number two the adoration for organ i played that tonight i am bound for the kingdom now marion anderson sang that song and ethiopia's shadow in america so i'm gonna say she was doper even doper than mozart she didn't have white privilege. I'm going to say that. I'm, that's a hell of a stretch, but I'm going to say that. 
See, some say, well, you know, she enrolled as a Mexican because she could pass, but she had to pass for safety. She left Little Rock to avoid being strung up. There was no law and order for black folks in the South. She had stripes against her. These famous white composers, they didn't have to deal with any of those adversaries at all. Even in Chicago, she had to find her place for people that she was better than got a quicker shot. And she was a woman. See, black women in these times, they had little rights and any woman like her, Ida B. Wells, had to stand against a dominant society and her own folks on the same fabric. As a black woman, you might have had, uh, you might have had somebody in the fix. They might have, you had to fight against the fix, the mailbox. The fix, the mailbox might have been the man. It might have been the man in that, in that situation. You know, it could have been some dude that basically said, look, man, you can't do this at all. Or you had a man of the opposite. So we can't fall into that, you know, black men were trying to keep black women away from that's that intersectionality crap no black not all black women men were doing that black folks supported each other it, you know it was some you know some isolated cases but it wasn't if if that was the case we would have never got anything done black black women supported you know black men and vice versa you had a couple coons out there that was hating on ida b wells you had, you, had, you, had a, you had quite a few, but, you know, she had some support, too. So, in theory, even if you did have a cool situation in the house, society was still a barrier in which she overcame. We need a film on Florence B. Price, Hidden Genius, directed and written by a foundational black American, a native black, that will not infuse any garbage and will be script, that will be on script and on code, with the message and if I ever get rich and get some change I'm putting it together Miss Price was a godsend we need to have more efficiency black folks we need to be more efficient on archive, archiving our greats and making sure that we don't forget them protecting their assets and the culture you know and the narrative that we protect so our great legacy and the work is not buried and then not showcased we need to protect that Miss Price should be sitting on mountains in the ravines of the best composers in the world she's just as good if not better than the Hans Zimmers and your famous white composers so that's why I wanted to do a special episode for Florence B. Price a hidden genius gone but never forgotten Y'all let me know what you think about this episode here. I'm not going to promote any businesses tonight. This is all about Florence B. Price. And this concludes the Bagland Podcast. I will see you with another episode soon. Y'all take care.
Ethiopia's Shadow in America by Florence Price, born on this day in 1887. It was composed in 1932 and that performance from 2015 was the first time the piece had ever been heard. Daniel Blundell was conducting the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, our featured orchestra in this week's afternoon concerts. <laughs> 